Hebrews chapter 11 is where we're going to start this morning in just a couple moments. I decided to jot down, just because it was Mother's Day, I thought I would jot down a little ode to moms. Some of these may apply to you, some of them may not, but um, here's my blessing to all the moms here this morning. May all the toilet seats be left down today, just as an initial one. May all who pass you, whether you're in office, out of an office, receive a paycheck or not, recognize that you are a working mom, okay? Finally, may all who feel like saying, my, you've got your hands full, instead, just lend a helping hand to you today, okay? So that's my ode to moms, my blessing to them. Here's my opening question this morning. What would a mom do if she knew that her, her child's life was in danger? Okay? I want you to think about that, moms. And, and maybe the shorter list would be this. What wouldn't a mom do if she knew that her child's life was in danger? If you ever see a big bear next to a little bear cub and something inside of you says hmm, maybe I shouldn't mess with that little baby bear cub right now. That instinct is beginning to tell you some of what a mom would do or wouldn't do to protect the life of her child. That's an instinct that's been born and given to us by God. I bring that up because of this. Today what we see is we see radical action taken over a long period of time, not just to save one's family, which is what he did, um, but, but really really to preserve uh, the, the human race, as it were. We're going to look at the story of Noah. And we've been in this series called Step of Yes. And what we're doing is we're looking at Old Testament figures that God used uh, and came and invited them to participate in something that he was doing. And we're looking at some of the response of what they did. And today we're looking at Noah. A quick summary of what's gone on up to this point. We're going to flip back to Genesis shortly and read part of the story. But things have gotten really, really bad on the planet. God comes to Noah and essentially reveals to him his plan to destroy the whole world with a flood. He tells him to build a big boat in the middle of a desert. And he tells him to bring pairs of all living creatures onto the boat. And then he basically gives this instruction that anyone who's going to be on the boat will survive. Those not on the boat won't survive this worldwide flood. Um, leave your finger in Hebrews 11. We're going to actually go to Genesis 6. So Genesis 6, let me just have you follow along as I read just a part of this um, to, kind of, to kind of set where we're going. Genesis 6, starting in verse 8. Things are bad, verse 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Here we see that with Enoch that we looked at a few weeks ago. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the, them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. 
This is how you are to make it. And then he goes on to lay out the instructions for how to build this ark that Noah didn't know how to build. So God's invitation to Noah was quite simply to build. Noah, I'm going to have you build something. Now, the occasion to build was total annihilation of the entire world. This had a way of getting Noah's attention and really altering the course of his life. I would imagine that news like that would do that to most of us as well, right? Total annihilation of the human race and the planet, that news tends to take our life's course and change it. And that's exactly what went on with Noah. Now, Noah's RSVP, his response to God's invitation. Remember, with every story that we read, even our own stories, even biographies that we read, we see God's invitation. It's always an invitation. God doesn't force Noah to obey or disobey. The invitation has been put out there. Noah could have responded different ways. Noah's RSVP appears to be not only yes, but remember from our Ephesians series way back when, we instructed from the scriptures that, that kids were to obey rad, right away, all the way, don't grumble or complain. That's the kind of obedience that God longs for in children to their parents. Noah appears to have that kind of a yes, not just a ho-hum yes. Now, hopefully you still left your finger in Hebrews 11. Let me have you follow along with me in Hebrews 11, verse 17. Hebrews 11 is a collection of many of the people that we're looking at in the Old Testament. It's sometimes called the Hall of Faith. And it's giving commentary on how these men and women of old were viewed. It's, it's commentary on their life. And this actually lets us in on some of what Genesis is silent about on how Noah obeyed. But what we get to see is we get to look back and actually see into the heart and, um, and motive of Noah here a little bit. I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's Hebrews 11, verse 7. Look at Hebrews 11, 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, namely a flood coming, catch his motive here, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. If you are taking notes this morning, there's a bulletin in there for you. If you're going to write down one thing today, write this down. Noah's life was shaped by the word and warning of God. His life became shaped by that. That's, that's what altered the course of his life. In fact, this invitation by God actually made him dramatically willing in some very key areas of life. His life was probably going along in some way, shape, or form, and all of a sudden he became willing to do some things because of the word and warning of God that I think prior to this wouldn't have crossed his mind. Now, due to the fact that Noah was a builder and was called to build, and a project like this would have required checklists, I've decided to give some, some, uh, a few check marks here. Some of you love lists. You love seeing those boxes filled out. And if there's one box not checked off, what does that do to you? Tell me, planners. Splinter in your mind. You're like, we've got to get that thing checked off, right? And some of you are like, who cares, right? I mean, don't even draw the boxes. You could draw a little happy face in the box. Usually those two are married. It's kind of fun. Um, all right, so, so the first thing for, for Noah that we see is this. All of a sudden, Noah became willing to focus 
in a way that he probably wasn't focused before. Anyone in here have trouble focusing? Okay. Now, some of you, some of you may have just been nudged by someone next to you, and you're all, what? And you don't even know what's going on. The defense rests its case, Your Honor. I mean, that's all we need right there, is that it just shows, like, yeah, that's, that's me. I struggle with focus. Um, how about not just focusing for 120 minutes, but focusing on something for, catch this, 120 years of focus, okay? Squirrel! That's a tough one for some of you. I know that that is. Because you're, you're just going, man, I, it's, it's going to be hard to finish this sermon without my brain going a hundred directions, right? Um, I don't think that's unique to our culture. I think that's just been worldwide that some people don't have that kind of focus. Um, Noah evidently began to, to change his focus. Whether he was a focused person or not, we're not sure. What would keep you focused, though, for that long? Maybe a worldwide flood would do it. I mean, do you think... Do you think if you struggle with focus and keeping priorities straight, do you think that a pending worldwide flood might do it? I think that might cure it. There's, there's medication, there's techniques, there's group therapy, there's all kinds of things we can do to kind of help overcome our, our focus issues. But I think a worldwide flood, if you genuinely believe that was coming, I think that might help begin uh, to, to clear your head. If you're looking in the scriptures for, uh, for God's heart for focus... Whether you're naturally wired that way or not, you would look up words like sober-minded. Um, the, the idea of priorities come in, it come, comes into play often in the scriptures. Clear-headed is another uh, just, just word to type into your Bible program to start thinking, what are some proverbs, what are some instruction that, that have to do with, with teaching that? Now, I'm going to use the number 120 years, and some of you Bible scholars are going, wait a minute, it didn't take no 120 years. Because if you do the math, and if you read the text carefully, which I highly recommend, it couldn't have taken 120 years. It had to be less than that. You can go on and do your own study of whether you think it was roughly 75 to 80 years or whatever else. The point is, 120 is in the text about this kind of countdown, that God starts this clock saying, saying that this is coming. And although Noah didn't know the exact date necessarily, it was a long period of time. And his building took somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 60, I think, on the, on the very quickest end, up to just around 100 years, whatever. We're not going to get hung up on that. We're going to use the number 120 years for, for the sake of convenience. For 120 years, Noah built. And think about this. For 120 years, essentially, Noah was proclaiming this warning of God, both in word... There's no doubt things that he said about the flood coming, but also in deed. The very fact that he is building a massive boat according to specifications from God is proclamation indeed about what's coming. So he is there essentially pronouncing the pending judgment of God. Now think about focus and think about Noah's dinner table for a minute. Shem. Now Shem's kind of the business-minded. This is all made up. It's not in the text, but it could be. Shem might be the business-minded person. They're building away at the ark, and Shem's mind gets, gets going on this. Listen, we're getting pretty good at working with gopher wood. We're getting decent and efficient at this whole pitch thing, and, I, and we're starting to really figure out the angles. I think there's actually money to be made in shipbuilding, and I think we could really actually have a little thing going here. What's Noah going to say at the dinner table? No! We're not going into business shipbuilding. That's not why we're doing this. If we're getting efficient, good. 
but we're not going into business. Good old Ham. Ham is the artistic one. Ham is there, and as they're building one day, Ham may have carved some really cool design on the stern of the ship. And he comes at dinner and he says, listen, um, I've got this really cool design, but what would top it off is if we could just have like a gold inlay on that. I think it would really give it a sharp glisten as we cut through the water. What's Noah say? No! We're not building a beautiful boat. That's not the point of why we're doing this. This is to save our life and the life of our family. We're not going to get off into the artistic thing. Stop carving. Ham, knock it off. Get back to building the boat. Japheth. Japheth's the kind of prideful one. He's at the dinner table and he says, listen, the guy down the street, he's challenging us to a boat race. I've been doing some numbers, Dad. I've worked some things out. I think we can get a few more knots out of this thing if I build some sweet sails. What do you think? No! We're not in a race! On and on this may have gone. There's all kinds of things that even in the midst of obeying God, Noah and his family could have got off focus on. 120 years or somewhere around there is a long time to stay focused on the project. But what's keeping him focused? Worldwide flood, pending judgment, belief that what God says is actually going to happen. The terrifying judgment of sin was ever in focus. Now, church, Christian, how often do we lose focus on what's really most important? Instead of making that collective for the moment, let's take it really individual. How often do you lose focus on what's really important. The warning of wrath is clear and is surely coming again in our day, no less than in Noah's. Are we focused on that? Noah trusted God's word of warning, and so he kept to the straight and narrow. There's some instruction there for us. All right, not only was he willing to, to focus, but he was also willing to work um, let me hear from you a little bit. This is an actual, this isn't like one of those rhetorical questions where preachers do, but I want to actually hear responses, okay? Many of you get up and work. Some of you receive a paycheck for that. Some of you don't. Why do you work? Think about it for a minute. Why do you work? Why do you get up and go to work? Or, or why do you get up and do your chores and the things that you have to do? Don't think of the Jesus answer. Just think of the honest answer, okay? We're in church. We've got to be honest. Rob, to feed your family. Why, why else do you work? Because it just needs to get done. That's from a mom, thank you. Ethan. Because you have to, okay? <laughs> Good answer, son. What's that? It's satisfying. Yeah, it really is. Sometimes. Monday's not so much, right? What else? Contribution to things. Yeah. Some of you recently, last five years, you've been without work. You've been hunting for a job. It's been really tough having a job. Some of you have a job all through the difficult times, and you've walked with people who haven't worked, and all of a sudden your job that used to be a, a, a chore, drudgery, whatever else might be, all of a sudden the fact that you're contributing, all of a sudden that you, the fact that you, that you receive a paycheck, all of a sudden the fact that you wake up and, and, and have a purpose in that day to go and, and, get and achieve and accomplish something, that, that begins to change your, your perspective on it. 
For some of you, you've been without work and you know the discomfort that not working brings, not just financially, but the discomfort um, just, just emotionally and, and all kinds of things. Okay? So we, we work for all kinds of reasons. Maybe it's, maybe it's fun for some people. Some people are very industrious and they're just, they're just wired that way. Uh, sometimes it's literally to just avoid pain. If you think about it, much of why we work has to do with, with putting aside certain things now for a benefit later. That's a large part of a student's quest. They're, they're, not, they're, they're studying and they're learning. Some really, really love to, to, to learn. But some of that is to say, you know what, I'm going to learn and grow to help better myself and, and, and be able to open more doors down the road. That's why I'm paying thousands of dollars for a class right now. That's why I'm getting up early. That's why I'm studying and, and being diligent to, to do the things um, that I'm doing. Noah, we see, worked because of why? Out of reverent fear of God. That's why he built the ark. That's what Hebrews said. Hebrews was commenting back on something we didn't know from Genesis necessarily. But he's building out of reverent fear. He was certain that a flood was coming. Did Noah have airtight proof that a flood was coming? Shake your head. He didn't. By faith, Hebrews says, he built an ark out of reverent fear. He was certain of things not yet seen. Had a worldwide flood ever occurred? Not to our knowledge, not to our record. God was doing something new here. And he acted on that because he knew, even though he had no proof. That's the nature of faith. That's the nature of the future, all of our futures. I imagine there were times when Noah's neighbors had invited him to a barbecue and Noah said, sorry, I can't come. I'll be working on the boat. And said neighbors are probably hanging out at the barbecue. And when someone new moved into the neighborhood, they said, by the way, let's, uh, let's let the meat keep grilling. I want you to walk over and meet my neighbor for a second. You want to meet an interesting guy. Come on over. So he heads over and he says, hey, Noah, um, remind me again. What, why are you working right now? Why are you building this boat? And Noah gives him his answer. And with each year that passes, he probably sounds more and more crazy, right? What would he say? The truth, maybe? The, 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 the truth is what? God told me to build a boat. God told me that a worldwide flood is coming and that I'm supposed to construct this massive boat according to his specifications. What are the neighbors doing right now? We don't know for sure, but they're probably jeering at him, Right? And with each year that passes, this sounds and gets a little bit more crazy. Look at chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 22. The build-up to this is this. Noah, build the ark this way. I want you to make it this long. Uh, Noah, you might want to write this down. There's some instructions coming. And on and on, he just lays it out. Here's what you're going to build. He not only gives the instructions to build, but he gives the manual on how he wants it built. And then he... Um, and then he says, store up food this way. He gives them all these instructions. And then look at 6.22. Verse 22 says this, Noah did everything as God commanded him. Right away, all the way, don't grumble or complain. That's how kids are to obey their parents. That's how Noah is obeying his heavenly father. Noah did all that God commanded him. Father knows best. I guess I better just do it that way. 
Then God gives some more instructions. Flip over to chapter 7. He says, go into the ark. The rain's coming. Bring the animals in this way. And then in Genesis chapter 7, verse 5, it says, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. He did everything the Lord commanded him. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was willing to work. His motive was reverent fear born out of trust. Here's my question for the church this morning. Here's my question for us Christians. Your willingness to work is directly tied to your trust of God's word. I'm not talking about necessarily your job, but, but working in the kingdom. Meaning this, if you are not a hard worker, it may stem more from a belief problem than a laziness problem. So my question, quite simply, is this. Are you working in the kingdom of God? Are you joining God in what he's doing? It's always his work building the kingdom. We don't really build the kingdom. Jesus is building his church. We're invited to participate in that. Are we working in the kingdom? Again, we have a track record to look back and say yes or no to that. In our community groups this week, we're going to look at, do you know your skill set? Do you know that God equips every single part of the body of Christ with gifts, supernatural given, God-given gifts? Do you even know your skill set? Do you know what you're good at? You know how you don't figure it out? By sitting there. Sometimes I tell people who are new, at, new to coming to church, they're a brand new baby Christian, they say, what should I start doing? I say, you know what, let's, let's talk about that a little bit, but some of that is just fleshed out as you start serving in some area. And we've seen people come through the years Let's start serving an area, and they're in some kind of a compassion ministry. They're visiting people bedside, and they're doing those sorts of things. And you know what? They're terrible at it. They, they knock over the IV stand. They're, they're really blunt and rude. They have more of a prophet's voice of saying, you know, you're most likely going to die. Uh, whatever. There's no bedside manner to that. Uh, the, the gift of mercy doesn't just flow out of their life. What the leader of that ministry would do is to lovingly come and put their armor on and say, Brother, sister, methinks you need a different ministry. Let's go check out over here. And you, just, and you just nurture them over somewhere. We've had people that started off in youth ministry as a youth pastor. I always gave people kind of a 30-day um, trial to just say, Look, in, in 30 days, we're just going to meet again and kind of see how this is going. And in 90 days, three months' worth of time, you're going to see if, if you've kind of gotten over the hump of, of just ministering to high schoolers or, or uh, junior high, whatever it might be. And we're just going to meet about that. Because I don't want to just say, great, we've got a living body with a heartbeat that wants to serve. Let's plug them in. I want people in that ministry that I say to junior hires, I say, you guys, you follow this girl the way she's following Jesus Christ. You guys, you follow this guy. You follow Jesus the way that this person's following Jesus. Not everyone's cut out for junior high ministry. Let me hear an amen to that. Amen. You're called to that. I love junior high ministry. I do. I still do. Not everyone's like me. I get that. We've had people that have served in junior high ministry, and they even made it past their 90 days, but it still wasn't quite a fit. And because I was in their life, and we were talking and praying back and forth, what we realized is, wow, you need to nudge over to children's ministry, and you just flourish in children's ministry. Some want to be in the band, and they have such a heart to lead God but God hasn't gifted them with the gift of tone, right, and, and musicality. And that's just the reality of it. 
You know, when people stop and stare and look at you when you're singing, that can be a great thing. But it doesn't always mean it's because you sing well, right? People stop and stare for a lot of reasons. So with that, we say, you know what? Man, you have such a heart for worship, um, but let's just leave you away from the microphone. You know, let's... Let's, let's have you help develop a worship set. Let's have you help nurture the heart of the band. Who, you know, uber-skilled musician over here, man, he needs the heart for worship and the picture of God that you possess. Let's, let's partner that up. So on and on it goes in terms of just looking about, about where someone fits in ministry. That's a part of what we're going to look at in, in terms of this. Here's one of the things I would challenge you to do. I would challenge you to read biographies and blogs of both dead people and living people today who have left the comfort of America and something similar to your life, and they are literally off in the jungle. They are literally off in a desert somewhere for the sake of Jesus Christ. They have trusted the word and warning of God so much, it has altered the course of their life. They've brought their family down there because they are utterly convinced that there's no other name by which men and women must be saved than by hearing the name of Jesus. And so they've gone and pursued that. When you read a blog of someone who's doing that today, it challenges you to say, wow, do I believe the word and warning of God? Or do I just say that I do? When men and women of old packed up all their belongings in a pine box that looked suspiciously like a coffin as they went off to the mission field, that says something about what they are devoting their life to. If you've been baptized like we got to see last week and you've made the statement, I commit to following Jesus no matter where it takes me, what it means for me for the rest of my days, could it not mean that he wants you to pack your stuff and your family into a pine box? Well, leave your family out of the pine box for now and move somewhere. And what if God did call you to that? Would you go? John 9.4, Jesus says this, As long as it is day, we must do the work of Him who sent me. We, Jesus is saying, must do the work of Him who sent me, our Heavenly Father. Night is coming when no one can work. The warning of God forever altered Noah's focus, his work, and, and next, his willingness to be counted a fool. What kind of opposition did Noah face? The Bible is silent on the specifics of what Noah faced. We don't see the the record of backyard barbecues and conversations between Noah. But it's very clear on general terms of the culture that he was building into. Look at verse 5 of chapter 6. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Banner of the day, only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. That's how they had parades. I mean, that's what the culture was like. All thought or inclination toward God, toward restraint, toward goodness, toward purity, gone. We feel like we're heading there sometimes, don't we? As a Christian, I look around, I feel like we're heading there sometimes. But I wouldn't say it's gone. We're all still here in this room. We find outposts of it all around. Imagine a culture where it's gone. Every inclination of people's hearts all the time, only evil all the time. That's... That's what Noah was building into. That's the culture that he was there. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt 
in God's sight and was full of violence. Not only had the earth become a sewer of sin, but it was a violent sewer. Only evil all the time had turned violent. Isn't that the natural, normal progression of sin? So it's not just that people are, are, are doing things that aren't honoring to God. It's that they're harming one another in the process. Standing alone in the face of the world of scoffers would wear on you unless you are certain of things to come. Unless you are utterly convinced that a worldwide flood is coming, I would imagine the pressure on Noah to stand alone, literally, against the entire world, would mount year after year to the point where he would cave. Unless a worldwide flood was coming. And he was utterly convinced of it. The investment, the, the, the return, is pennies on the dollar. When you think about the scoffing and the mocking and the, and the culture with which I'm having to do this, uh, when, you, when you compare that to think about the wrath of God's punishment on Sid that is certain to come. All of a sudden, does it become easy to stand up to scoffers? No, but it becomes a foregone conclusion in your mind. Because any time you think of caving, you go, man, what's worse? What man and women think of me or what God thinks of me? I'm going to choose God for eternity. As in the days of Noah, God's patience in bringing justice is viewed by some today as evidence that it will never happen. And with each year that passes, it looks more and more like the return of Christ and the setting right of all things is not going to happen. For Christians, we view it as the great patience and mercy of God. God is not slow about His promise, about keeping His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any one of you would perish. As a Christian, we view that as, as God giving people opportunity. Maybe that's a part of why He built such a big boat and had Noah do it. it there was a long period of time of proclamation. There was a long grace period. Year after year after year after decade went by and the proclamation of him building that boat is proclamation that this is coming. Church, Christian, are you willing to stand for God even if the whole world bows to a lie? What suffering, mocking, or pressure would cause you to turn from God's word and warning. Lastly, Noah's willingness to focus, work, and be a fool would have been absolutely nothing if he didn't complete the task. The last way in which the word and warning of God altered his life that we'll look at this morning is this. He was willing to finish. Noah was found faithful. He completed the work that God had assigned to him according to all that God had said. Do you understand that you and I are direct recipients of that obedience? Through one man's obedience, we're recipients of that to Noah's faithfulness. Here's my question for us as a church, as a Christian. Will you and I be found faithful? Will this church be found faithful? Will we complete our mission? What will ensure this happening? What are the results? Here's a powerful list to make sometime. What are the results of you not finishing well? as a Christian. Start to think about that. Start to chew on that. What are the results of this church not finishing well? It becomes a motivator. 
As a quick aside, let me just share with you a little post, postlude epilogue kind of a thing. Noah must have lived happily ever after, after coming off the ark, right? Well, what we see is this. We see that he worshipped. He got off the boat and he built something else. He built an altar to worship God, which is powerful. Turn over to chapter 9, Genesis 9. We see that there's a covenant established by God where he says, I'll never destroy the earth in this way again. Genesis 9.20 says this, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And you think, well, that's nice. That's a nice end to the story. Read verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Well, that's not so nice. It goes from a nice, cute story to kind of a, you know, hillbilly in the woods laying drunk and naked in his tent story, which is a little weird. I bring up the post-flood Noah just to guard against this. Sometimes the heroes of the Old Testament are taught in such a way where we sit in the congregation or we study it for ourselves and read it and go, I could never be a Noah. I mean, I haven't focused for this whole message. How, how can I focus on the things of God? I mean, it takes me. It's, it's good that I come to church every week because I need that refocus. How can I do that for 120 years? I could never be a Noah. I don't stand up to the scoffing. I cave at peer pressure. I'm not willing to work. My life is a a ruined mess track record of that. And what happens is we can sometimes set Noah up here and say, I could never be that, and so why even try? God could never use me. Or else we think that when we looked, we we looked at this last week, so if you want more in-depth talking on that, listen to last week. But when we see that Noah was blameless doesn't mean that he lived without sin. There's one who ever walked the earth and lived without sin, and that's Jesus Christ. I want to show you explicitly that the Bible not only doesn't shy away from, but shows to us clearly that Noah wasn't a perfect man, that being found blameless with God and walking with God is not, is not that he was blameless and never sinned. When I read this, I think, man, how life can turn in the span of one verse. He became a man of the soil. Then he drank from it, got drunk, and lay naked to his shame. We watched last week Haman's story in Esther, how his life flipped in just a couple of verses' time. That could be our lives too. In just an instant, things are going great, and a phone call changes everything. A pink slip changes everything. A diagnosis changes everything. And we pinpoint it back and go, how my, how my life changed in that instant. Grace is about God's favor given, not earned. There's only one way to be saved by God, and it's through grace. I want to show you this explicitly in the life of Noah. Isn't it awesome that Noah's life, though, wasn't defined by by some of his worst days? How does Hebrews remember Noah? He built an ark in reverent fear by faith. That's his life. Did he have some bad days? Of course! He's a sinful human being like the rest of us. He has struggles and hang-ups like the rest of us. But his life is remembered as a faithful man of God. And he's held up elsewhere in Scripture as a faithful man of God who walked with God. 
in spite of his bad days. You know what Satan wants to whisper in your ear? When you have a mess-up day like Noah had, what's the point of going on? After this, no one will remember anything else that you've done. This will define you. It's a lie. Allow God's truth to come to light in that moment. And don't get stuck there. God was able to take Noah and have him, and have him finish well. I want you to look at this list, willing to focus, willing to work, willing to be a fool, and willing to finish. And I want you to think about Jesus. If there was ever a person that had his life shaped completely by the word and warning of his father, it's Jesus. Jesus was focused. Scriptures tell us that he set his face like flint toward the cross. He knew always why he was going. Remember our study in John? His time had not yet come. My time has not yet come. What is that talking about? It's talking about his mission on earth. His work of what he was here to do. Not only was he focused, he worked. He said his food is to do the will of the Father. You say, well, he's God, so it wasn't really work to him. It was work to him. In the garden, what did he say? And if there's any way this cup can be removed from me, this work, this job that I have to do, that I'm pointing my whole life toward, remove it from me, but not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to do the work. He was also called a fool. Opposition followed Jesus everywhere. Here's just a highlight of some of the name-calling. Demon-possessed, fool, phony, on and on it goes. The name-calling against Jesus turned violent as well. And that ultimately, in the sovereignty of God, is what led to his appointed death. And Jesus was found faithful. He completed his mission. From the cross, what do we hear Jesus say? It is finished. Check. Done. The victory's, the victory's been accomplished. What I came here to do is finished. And Jesus was found faithful, praise God, to the end. The call for us is similar. Look at Matthew chapter 24. You can just jot this down, look it up later. But an interesting study in the scriptures is to type in the days of Noah. The days of Noah are almost like a character in the Bible. They're referred to a whole bunch. And in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking, he says this, For the coming of the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be, so, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Quick point of interest. Did Jesus believe in a historical flood of Noah? Absolutely. He's referring to it in the past as an actual event, and he's comparing it to these days as an actual event. Jesus resurrecting Noah's work, that wrath is coming against sin, is pointing out this. It's a warning to people. Lawbreakers, there's no other way. Just like in the days of Noah, there was one way of salvation, the ark. And you placed your belief by entering the ark. Your actions showed what you really believed. If you were in the ark, you believed. If you weren't, your law-breaking deeds were going to be judged. Jesus' message is this. The coming of the Son of Man is coming as surely as the flood was coming in Noah's day. And there's one way to be saved. It's to be found in me. I'm the new ark. 
Those who are found in me and place their trust in me and walk in my ways, those are the ones who are saved. Lawbreakers, all of you who aren't found in me, judgment is coming on your sin. In the days of Noah, they should have been terrified by this warning. They weren't. They were going on with marriage. They were going on with their backyard barbecues. They were going on with life. Until the flood came. Don't the days of Noah seem like the days of our lives as well? I mean, don't you see the same pattern going on? There's judgment against sin coming. That's a fundamental part of the Christian message. But we like to talk about the love of God. This is the love of God. To warn your children about pending doom is loving. If you aren't in Christ, could it not be that you sitting in this church on Mother's Day 2013 is a sign of love from the Father? Today is the day of salvation. I hope God is stirring in some of you. How do I get in the ark? I do believe there's wrath coming. What does it mean to be in Christ? It's as simple as repenting. It's as simple as as being found in Christ by praying to just receive, say, I do believe in that. Romans 10.9 says, If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Oh, it's as easy as a snappy prayer? No, it's as easy as a snappy prayer. And getting on the ark. What does it mean to get on the ark as a Christian? It means to show by your lifestyle that you really repented. You begin to follow Him. You begin to walk in a manner worthy of His calling. You begin to come back here every single week or another good church that's teaching the Bible, and you just begin to get around the body of Christ, and you begin to grow. Praise God. God's doing that in our midst, people. I don't know if you understand that. But people are deciding to turn their lives over from a life of them being in charge to Jesus being in charge and receiving the free gift of salvation. I want to close by showing you a scripture that is really profound. This is Paul near the end of his life writing to a younger pastor and he's giving him some instruction. Some of you, most of you, all of you, should have been given a nail. Look something like this. I want you to pull it out and hold it in your hand for a moment. I've given you a nail today to kind of let you visually remember that God is at work in our city. And you are invited to participate in the work of God no less than Noah. My challenge to you is this. What if for the next 120 days, representing 120 years that we see in the scripture, what if for the next 120 year, uh, days, let's, let's call it days, you put this in a prominent place that you could see every single day, I'll tell you where this is going to sit for me. It's going to sit under my computer screen because I look at my computer every day. What if for the next 120 days you focused? Here's what I mean by focusing. You review the warnings that Jesus gives about wrath and salvation. You know a couple of great verses to start with? John 3.16. John 3.16. What if you just reviewed the words of warning and, and salvation that Jesus gives to us? Here's another one. Matthew 24, the one I just put up on the screen. What that means you're doing is this. You're being sober-minded, clear-headed, as Paul was instructing to Timothy. What if for the next 120 days you said, God, I'm going to work. I'm going to work for the kingdom for the next 120 days. 
Watch for where God is building and join Him. Do you know that the body, the soul, the mind, the pocketbook, the stomach of people are important to God? Jesus went around ministering to all those needs. Find a need and meet it. There are people literally who are hungry in our congregation that come periodically to our church who are hungry. They're not getting enough to eat. I just jotted down a couple of things. Right here at church are a lot of ministries that you could begin to participate in. Hands of Hope is a, is a ministry to AIDS orphans in Zimbabwe that we're tied into. Love, Inc. is a ministry that we participate in, meeting the needs around us. Um, a homeless outreach. We have a college student that goes down, I think still weekly, to the homeless in St. James Park in downtown San Jose um, uh, that, that, that you could jump in and be a part of. Uh, we have a GO team that thinks global missions that meets every single month, and there is work to be done pushing in those areas. Um, we have youth ministries. We have children's ministries. We have worship, media, all the stuff that goes on. We have a grounds crew that works very, very hard. We have a community garden in the back that we're building and working towards. Where can you have your money, your time, your talents put to work toward the kingdom? You know what Paul reminds Timothy? Look at this. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Don't just talk about it, dream about it, pray about it, write blogs about it. Do the work. I'm looking at some faces that work really hard, evidently in my heart and mind, for the kingdom. So I think to a lot of you, honestly, I'm preaching to the choir. Be encouraged by that. You don't need to go add nine more ministries. Please don't. That will kill you, and then you'll walk away from our church, and I'll have to spend a lot of counseling hours to bring you back. Don't do that. Some of you, though, are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now that says, man, I've never pursued my spiritual gift. I don't have a clue what my spiritual skill set is. My calling? I don't understand what my calling is. I've never pursued God. I'm afraid of what he might tell me. If that's you, start. Take a simple step of yes. What if for the next 120 days you were willing to become a fool? Here's what I mean by that. When you read the Gospels, do you identify with the names that they are calling Jesus because you're walking in a similar manner? If so, you're being counted a fool for the right reason. A lot of reasons to be foolish that I wouldn't recommend. Don't be counted the fool for that. But what if for the next 120 days, every time you see that nail, you just thought, you know what, I'll be a fool for Christ today. I'll be thought ludicrous for how I'm living my life today. If you're doing that, praise God and keep going. Here's how Paul says it. He says, endure suffering. One of the sufferings that a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ gives, and that's not vocational pastors or you know, tent evangelists. That's a Christian. One of the in, uh, sufferings you must endure is just to be count, counted a fool. Finally, what if for the next 120 days you just decided to actually finish this challenge that we're talking about? And by finishing 120 days, you are stating that the end of a matter, that the end of a race, that the end of a life is more important than the commitment at the beginning. A promise is great. A promise fulfilled is what it's all about. I already counted it out for you. Sunday, September 8th. That's 120 days. Sunday, September 8th. 
when you're done with your 120 days, you can look at that and say, wow, it feels good to be found faithful. It feels good to complete a mission. Man, I've never completed anything in my life. It feels good to check this off. All that is is just a reminder to say, man, what will it be like on your deathbed? What will it be like if you're still alive when the Son of Man comes and you're found working in the vineyard for the kingdom? That's what this represents. Paul says it this way, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Here's what's freeing about that. You don't need to fulfill other people's ministry. You don't need to look at Noah or anyone in this room and go, I could never be that guy. John G., man, that guy works way too hard. I could never work like that. Clink, what he does up here on the guitar, I could never do that. The compassion and prayer and mercy of this, I could never do that. Good, don't do that. Fulfill your ministry. You be found faithful to the end. Band, why don't you come on up? I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And just in the quietness, these are, these are four words that I read and are convicted by. Focus, work, becoming foolish, and finishing. We see that they're near and dear to the heart of God. We see in the life of Noah a little bit of how they may have been fleshed out. God, you taught with mustard seeds. You taught with bread. You taught with very common articles and items that we pass all the time without thinking about. I pray this nail, as common as it is, I pray that as it sits on our bathroom vanity, I pray that as it sits in our car, I pray, God, that for some of us, if we put it on our desk, that as we look at it, God, we would remember the focus of Noah, the work of Noah. The fact that Noah wanted to be found faithful before you at the expense of the entire world thinking he was a fool. And God, let it be a reminder to finish the ministry. Finish well. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself this morning, God, that your sustaining grace would grow this and cause this to happen in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.